Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Deidre Tala. Today, we'll be talking with Sabrina Banerjee. She is the author of The Violent Domestic Laws its practice, and strategies of survival. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, excited to talk about the book. Yes, I would like for you to tell us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project. Right. Um, so uh, I am a faculty in the research institute in Calcutta, which is like a, uh, the capital of West Bengal city, uh, part of Eastern India. Um, so, um, I, I teach sociology and political science in here. It's a research institute, so there's not a lot of teaching, uh, more of research. So, uh, which works great for me. Uh, and I've always been interested in questions around gender. Um, I've worked more with labor. It was only with this, uh, project and then subsequently the book that, uh, me and my colleagues, so this is a co-authored book with, uh, three others, we started talking about violence. Um, and this was also something that was happening. So uh, this comes out of a research project, which was which we applied for in 2016. At a time when we were every single day, we would read news on uh, women killing themselves, women dying due to abuse in the family. Uh, and this was, this was a particularly difficult period in uh, that sense. So that's what sort of led us to these questions that the book tries to ask. Can you give us information about the history of domestic violence in India? Um, so, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the questions around domestic violence, as is, as is um, the reality, unfortunately, reality everywhere, it always existed. Uh, the, the the first time this comes into the center stage is through the women's movement, um, which has been re- so in, uh, in the post-independence period in the uh, after 1947, uh, the women's movement was was 
more concerned with questions around equality, a right to work, and all of this kind of more economic issues. But it was towards the later half of the 60s, 70s, we see that there's a shift in focus which are, are on violence against women. And this talks about both public and private spheres, spaces of violence. So you have uh, in the, you have consistently the women's, the autonomous women's movement. So this is the, uh, you have multiple different groups kind of uh, loosely collaborating uh, around the issues of violence against women. Um, and uh, so in the, uh, and, and a lot of this, mo the movement have been around questions of legislation. So pushing forward for new laws. And we first had the uh, Anti-Dowry Act, which was uh, punishing of dowry offenses uh, when um, where women uh, would be tortured for dowry, dowry being the uh, you know kind of price, kind of not get some. It's kind of it could be money, uh, it could be furniture, it could be cars, things which the bride was to take with them to the groom's family, and there was a huge demand. Um, and this varied across the country, of course. It's not a uniform story, but a, there was always a huge demand that the uh, that the families would make of the uh, bride's family. So even after marriage. So questions around the dowry was one of the central uh, areas around which the violence against, questions of violence against women uh, was centered in the beginning. Uh, then we have, and, and this led to a number of laws and number of, um, number of um, amendments, sorry, number of uh, clauses within other laws making a dow making uh, dowry death uh, people uh, implicated on dowry death uh, having being, being a punishable offense. And then uh, later, this 1980s is considered to be the golden period of legislation in terms of questions around violence against women. And uh, that's when the um, when the shift, the focus shifts from only dowry to talk about cruelty more generally. And cruelty would in uh, cruelty, but all of this is in the marital family. So the site of violence is located in the marital family in the way in which the demands of law are being made. So you have the 498A, uh, which is a new law which comes in, which makes it all of these are criminal uh, laws. And this, of, of course, uh, makes cruelty a punishable offense and has to be proven. It, but again, it talks mainly of physical cruelty, though it does recognize certain forms of mental abuse. Um, but, and, and and I'm, of course, brushing over this is a long history. I'm just giving you broad strokes of this. But the, the one of the issues with, so, uh, sorry, uh, one of the issues with this, uh, this kind of, uh, with the criminal legislation was the, was in the nature of violence. In the, often women, uh, the survivors, were reluctant to report on uh, the perpetrators of violence as there was a, as as these criminal laws would often end up putting them in prison and that's something that they didn't want. So this became a more complicated kind of uh, issue where women wanted ways in which or survivors wanted ways in which violence could be addressed without necessarily needing to incarceration and such forms of criminal proceedings. And this is when the demand for civil law became, began. And and um and the Protection of Women Against Domestic Violence Act comes up in two thousand five after decades of um 
fighting uh, like movement as well as uh, representation to the parliament, multiple governments coming in, making different drafts. And this was finally in 2005 that this law came into being. This was a criminal, this was a civil law. And it was the law for the which for the first time recognized non-marital species of domestic violence. So natal family and other relationships which they called in nature of marriage. So I could talk about this later. So, but basically widening the scope of uh, of the domestic. It also recognized violence to be more than physical. So the PWDVA was a very central um, law uh, in this history of movement and law. Um, so that's kind of the broad canvas of domestic violence and its legislations. And now you talk about the 1972 Makara rape case. How did this play a role in domestic violence laws? The uh, the Makara rule uh, rape case did not directly play a role in the domestic violence law, but more generally in questions of uh, bringing the question of violence against women. Um, you know, so social practice. So sort of the patriarchal institutions and social practices which enable and legitimize violence against women both in the public and the private sphere became very evident from the Mathura uh, rape case. So this was this was also, also it showed this was a very central case on showing the intersectionality in the nature of violence because um, this, uh, I mean the, the class difference, the class difference between the survivor, um, sorry, between the uh, victim in this case and the perpetrators was again a very important part of how justice was denied. Um, so, uh, so that was very important. How it brought the movement together, the autonomous women's movement together. You know, in your book, you talk about patriarchy and the section four ninety eight a. Explain to the audience a little more about that. Um, so, the idea of the uh, the the four ninety eight, like said, uh, and and the IPC section of three ninety four B, which for both criminal laws, uh, comes into being uh, to kind of strengthen uh, women's sort of women's arsenal against domestic violence, survivors' arsenal against domestic violence. But as a criminal law, one of the central uh, central actors through whom this law was to be worked out was the police. So, police is again a part of the system that of, of the very structural institutions which create these various forms of violence. So, there has been reports of women who seem to, like, not, not, um, isolated reports. This has been a very, uh, clear trend of women failing to register, uh, complaints, police sending them back, etc. So, uh, so section one, well, section four ninety eight a dealt with cruelty within the marital home, uh, and the issue of um, dowry. Uh, it the main actor be, was actually a part of the larger structures which were uh, keeping a certain kind of violent structure in place. The second thing is that it also defined cruelty as an exceptional moment of being a woman to grave physical injury, a moment which could lead to something like death or death-like situation. It did not recognize the everydayness of violence that most, uh, many survivors had to go through. It was only a certain escalation which would allow for the law to 
then play out. So these things for us make us, and this has been a criticism that has been raised by the uh, by feminist lawyers, women's movement at the later stages, that how the law, in spite of giving certain very like strict sanctions against forms of violence that women face within the domestic space, the marital domestic space, actually limits itself by not questioning some of the very central patriarchal elements of this relation of this intimate relationship of marriage and the marital home. Again, in the book you talk about the cultural biases against divorce and separated women. Do you think this bias keeps women in domestic situations that are not healthy? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um the whole the idea of the the centrality of the family as a basic unit of the social society is so much and uh, and when I I mean I don't want to push forward an Indian exceptionalism, but in the way in which uh social structures and social or social relationships function, the family has been at least uh in this context, in Indian context I know has been identified as the central element. So um sought to disrupt, so to say, like um, in because divorce would be looking at as a disruption is often a, often for many women a, a major like a major step that they are not uh, they do not want to take because it would invite social science uh, criticism uh, multiple reason which are uh, like multiple ways in which mediations happen through which that family or the mar- marriage can be made to survive. Um, so, so I, the culture and the culture's um, values, so to say, play a very important role in um, a lot of the why women do not talk about this. I'll just give you one example from uh, the National Family Health Survey, which is the, which is a large-scale uh, survey done across the country, which says that in West Bengal, um, I looked uh, for a different thing, I looked at the um, recent data from West Bengal. It says that about 52% of ever married women, women who have been ever married, report experiencing physical or sexual violence, and only 9%, sorry, only, yes, only 9% of them had told someone of this, and less than 1% had actually asked for formal help. So this data in itself gives you a sense of how it's still such a silent thing. Now, tell us about your methodology in your study. Right. Um, so um, this we were trying to do quite a few things. This, the, we were a, we were a team of four people. Uh, my myself and Nandini Kosh, we were worked in the same uh, work in the same place in Institute of Development Studies, Kolkata. Nichira Goswami is works in the. National University of Juridical Sciences. So she has some kind of uh, legal. Uh, no, she's not a lawyer, but she works on legal in um, university. So she has a lot of legal expertise. And Madhuramahapada was our postdoc um, fellow for the project, and then she was co-author. So uh, all of us wanted to do different, like quite a few things, so that we could study. Our main idea was to study the life of the law through its multiple uses. So uh, the f- one, the, the first thing that we looked did was to, uh, so let me just uh, go back a step and explain slightly the method of uh, how the uh, how cases in the protection, uh, PWDV, the Protection of Women Against Domestic Violence Act, apply. 
So this is has to be done through something called the domestic incidents report, which is basically a report talking about the first incidents of violence, frequency, who is who are the perpetrators, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's it's quite a detailed form. So there are multiple um, spe- um, sites where you could uh, 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 where where you could go to file a DIR, the domestic incidents report. The site that we looked at was the protection officer, a specific official or officer um, set up in the different districts that we selected uh, who was responsible for uh, filing the DIRs and also for taking forward the case with the survivors. Um, We worked on seven districts based on an earlier study done by another university, Jadapur University, uh, looking at the high incidence areas or high incidence uh, uh, districts from their from their study, and doing a continuation of that. So, four of our districts were like that, or were chosen based on the high incidents in the previous study, which was between two thousand um, nine and I think two thousand um, eleven to fifteen. I think I might be wrong, but um, it, the, the, it no two thousand ten to twelve, uh, and then two districts we chose based on minority population. So one of those was a minority um, uh, population, the Muslim dominated district. And the other was a tribal-dominated um, district. So to sort of give, an, give a sense of, the, to get a sense of a heterogeneity or whether there is a heterogeneity in the nature of violence. So understand intersectionality at all. And the last district was Darjeeling, which, was in, which is in the hills in West Bengal. Um, it's, it's famous for tea, uh, which was one of the places which reported steady low incidence of domestic violence. And we were interested to look at how this would be was it an outlier or not? So the first step of the um was we looked at the big big data like is in the NFHS etc. The um data uh, but not like just to provide a context, uh but we looked at the DIR spied in these seven districts to get a certain kind of a very basic descriptive statistics of the women who were filing these cases. So we were specifically interested in the PWBA. So we were looking at survivors who had filed this particular now. And then we did interviews across these seven districts with 10 women in each district with protection officers. Um, very few, we were not able to talk to the police because they were not interested to talk to us with, with lawyers um, and with NGOs and um, and civil society organizations who were also very active in providing access for the women to, uh, to, these, uh, to these services. And the last thing that we did was because um, this the PWDBA was looked at as a quite an inclusive law and all of this, but we were interested in looking at certain marginalities and how they negotiated with the law. So we looked at gender and sexual minorities, specifically lesbian women and trans people, and we looked at uh, dis- disabled women and women with psychosocial disabilities. So these were the four categories of women that we looked at. Outside the interviews that we did, not women who accessed this law, but uh, but those who had reported domestic violence and their experiences in trying to access this. It, sorry, that was the long answer to methodology. Thank you. Now, you, you talk about the women from a wide range of backgrounds. Can you explain the, the various backgrounds in terms of social class? So, uh, because we uh, uh, we wanted to, like I said, we wanted to understand the cross section and how how the idea of violence 
please out across these sectors we were consciously trying to make it make this as varied as possible most of the women we speak to however are working class women belonging to uh so uh, we have quite a few women belonging like most of a uh, large section women belonging to the general caste so uh not the uh, so not the lower lower castes uh, women who reported being general caste but we also spoke to women who reported um uh, being of the sc community which is scheduled caste community uh uh we ha- we spoke to muslim women uh in murshidabad one of the districts which is the most majority district we spoke to muslim women but also in the other districts where they were not majority we consciously tried to interview women who would uh, uh outside the dominant hindu frame so we spoke to muslim women we spoke to very few i think we spoke to three uh christian women as minorities and just minorities in darjeeling uh this was entirely and uh, this was largely non hindu population so you would speak to like the the women we spoke to uh few them uh, so we spoke to buddhist women there so we had while overwhelmingly hindu uh representation our sample we also managed to speak to other religious minorities so this was our first uh right here the variation in terms of caste was not so much we wanted also to speak to women tribal women because and there was also there's also sense it's also for uh, it's kind of a common sense you can understanding that there is uh for people who don't work with uh, on tribes or tribal lodge and the like that that they have their own systems try different tribal communities have their own systems of justice etc so we wanted to see whether how this how this more mainstream law how the access or the what access this mainstream law but we were very, we were able to speak to very few women uh, tribal women uh and because uh, i mean and this was this was our limitation of access we could not get women to talk to us uh, so this was the larger uh, and and we there were few women who were upper class upper caste working women in like in um in working in service sector jobs uh, and lastly like i said we spoke to uh, lesbian women these were all women who identified themselves as cis heterosexual women apart from this we spoke to uh, general sexual minority women um and uh disabled women and uh, women with psychosocial disorders so uh, that these are the categories that we tried to explore what about the age of the woman when they made the complaint yeah sorry so that was uh that was kind of self selecting of it because we were going through the domestic incidents report and it was evident that most women fell in the age between so the big range between 18 to 49 so that is the largest uh that the most of the women we spoke there was there is no uh, no one we spoke to who was under 18 at least reported to be under 18 most of the women we spoke to were between the age bracket of 20 to 45 49 we speak, spoke to few elderly women widows mostly who were also uh, who had also filed complaints against usually against their sons or sons and daughters in law um and and there were some women who were uh, of that so 50 to 60 um 67 was the age bracket but hardly anybody older than that tell us something about the domestic violence against 
women and their daughters-in-law, sisters-in-law, and the family are committing this type of abuse. You gave several examples of the vicious violence. So this is, and this is the, I mean, that's, I think, the, the whole uh, street, I mean, the, the home, the domestic is such a complex space because of the ways in which gender relations play out um, is so, uh, like, it's very difficult to kind of put them into these boxes of the male, but like, though there are, though male perpetrators are overwhelmingly the majority, but it's not in most of many of the cases, like a large number of cases, you know, uh, the women reported facing violence, the daughter-in-law reported facing violence from both the um, both the husband and the family, so the, the father-in-law and the mother-in-law. And uh, and in many cases, the sister-in-law. And a lot, a lot of this kind of uh, goes, goes to the goes to this idea that Venice Pindioti actually talks about in her work on patriarchal bargains of how in a system where uh, the, the currency of power is alliance with patriarchy, women, senior women seek to become patriarchs or allies of the patriarch within the family. So we have horrendous, we hear horrendous cases of mothers in law um, often Report is the women report that they are instigating their sons to be violent towards their wives, and this comes this maybe comes from that kind of an insecurity of a conjugal loyalty, which might become a power block against against the mother-in-law's domination. So, we we have many we have here many of these cases of women who talk about how their husbands have been influenced by their mothers-in-law, how and in. Other cases are talked about silence of the mothers-in-law, also fathers-in-law who would not directly, maybe direct, who would directly not perpetuate violence, but would um, keep silent in the face of the kind of abuse that the woman was going through. Um, we also had uh, saw how women, uh, in cases of migrant men, so men who had gone out of work, became became free to violence from there. From their uh, parental, uh, from their marital family, uh, without the without the husband being present, in a particularly, and this is one example I want to get in. A, this was a particularly tragic case of of a woman in Murshidabad um, who speaks about how the abuse by her parents-in-law drove her husband to commit suicide, and they then drove her out of the house to the extent that now the now she's secured an order from the law that says that she needs to, she can be reinstated in the house. But the police itself is scared of putting her back in the house because they're saying that they will kill you. It, uh, so, so this woman goes from door to door asking people if they have odd jobs and sleeps in their homes. She has no parents, she has nowhere to go to. So that's the extent to which the family becomes a collab, the marital family becomes a collaborator in violence. Just one, one more thing that I want to say about sister-in-law in the natal family. So often women leave their marital family and come back to the uh, natal family, temporarily exiting or permanently exiting. And here the, the figure of the sister-in-law, the brother's wife becomes again another opponent. Often in terms of being abusive, but more in terms of being competitors for scarce resources. 
So the Sistrinma emerges in multiple interesting ways as in a diversity. Now, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What were some of the reasons why women would stay in an abusive situation? This, I think, was for us the most um, the 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 biggest learning experience answering trying to answer this question and I don't think we have like the we still wonder ourselves at whether any of these reasons are strong enough in our head but so one of the reasons that women talked about was what you had already earlier pointed out the, the cultural the social importance of the marital family what we call it's called there's a Bengali word for it called shangsha. Shangshar is domesticity. It is something that many of the women that we spoke to, not just um, for this project, his book, but also in um, other women that we speak to around us, Shangshar is very central. It has, women are socialized in ways, young girls are socialized in ways, even today, where the Shangshar is very central part of their identity and their success as women. And this does not mean that these are women who do not work. They might be working women, but but that the the centrality of the marital family and its success and the shame, so called, of failure of marriage was one one reason that many, many women cited. The second thing that was that women talked about was which is kind of related to this is children. How um, interestingly, though, women often exited because of children to, ch- to for children's safety, but women uh, spoke about the need to continue in a uh, like the, the children to have both the parents and have a space which is their own, uh, and it is not the woman's natal home. So the continuation of the patriarchy was very central to the women's um, to many of the women with children who would continue who temporarily exit these homes, their violent homes, but would keep coming back for the sake of making sure both that the child has the uh, what they call the father's identity, but also access to, like, in, is able to inherit later the father's or the grandparents' properties. Uh, the, the Many women stayed on simply because of economic reasons. They, these were women in either low-paid precarious employment. So uh, a connected fact to this is the very low labor force participation of women in India uh, and lack of access to well-paid, safe jobs for women of a particular class, women with less education, um, less access to these kinds of jobs. So a large section of the, a large amount of the number of women in our sample was working, were working class women who felt uh, if unable to leave the domestic space because of 
lack of a space to say they, they came from poor families so they couldn't go back to their natural homes their parents could not be able to provide for them and whether learning or not learning they didn't have enough to sustain themselves so a lot of women after talking about the essentialness of the domestic domestic space etc would actually go back to this question of of the of the economic need but there was also this complicated idea of affect of the affect towards the family the affect towards and and this was something that we find we found difficult to explain uh, in how women would often also say that oh he hits me he slaps me but that cannot be the reason for leaving him uh, he is my husband after all so who will take care of him so these kinds of understandings of responsibility and affect also makes these reasons a lot more complicated in some ways you gave us an example of women are uh, disrespecting their husbands or the babies crying too loud. What was something about that? Yeah, so this is, and this is this whole idea of, uh, like, and um, I, I will start off with the, uh, with the, with the NFHS that I mentioned before, the National Family Health Survey, which also says that, uh, which also kind of um, talks about how um, reasons for violence, this is the question, and one of the things, why is wife, what are the reasons which might make wife beating justified? So this is, I'm paraphrasing this, of course. And a lot of, uh, lot of men and women talk about disrespect towards elders, disrespect towards husband, and uh, leaving the home without telling anybody, not being, all of these as legitimate reasons to push for legitimate uh, reasons um, for inviting this kind of sanction. In our sample too, we had, we we saw how um, women would talk about, and many of these women are now with a certain distance would recognize these things as, so one of the women talks about how she put a little bit too much salt in her husband's food, and that led to her being severely beaten. Um, Others would talk about refusing to have sex being a reason for uh, trigger for violence. Uh, and even something like, so for many of these husbands were were uh, alcoholic and they, uh, some of the women talked about how with the, with the uh, children crying, them unable to be, go to sleep with the name would fall on the, on the wife. And what became evident from this was that uh, the idea of, there was always a search for rationalizing violence. So what we call triggers would be looked at by many of these women as reasons to understand. So placing violence as, be, as something outside the perpetrator, something external. So some kind of activity, whether they have found it justified or not, they would connect it to these activities, these triggers, and try to not repeat these things. So so the idea of these kind of very like these are not even these are non-issues but they become central to somehow becoming a failure as wife was was internalized within the family setting so many of the women said that their mothers-in-law would also complain about these things but you put too much salt that is why he got angry and that's why he beat you up so does that answer your question oh yes uh can you give us an example of a teacher who was saving money before she married. Can you tell us more about that? Um, and uh, then I think she was, 
her, the first day of her marriage, her husband uh, told her that the, the that she didn't get he he didn't get good quality uh, dowry. Uh, I think that's that was that maybe that is the example. She had yeah so and she felt extremely insulted uh, at how um, how she was derided from the very beginning. And after marriage, because she was earning. Um, the husband did not uh, give her enough money. Like she was forerunning what was used to run the family. And and inexplicably, she kept doing this. Like inexplicably to me, but not to her because she was also wanted to sustain her family. Uh, uh, she kept continuing to uh, work and sustain the family while the husband uh, and, the, and the larger marital family would live off her uh, earnings and would abuse her for working outside, for doing not doing things properly. So, uh, so even in cases of education, of the, of she was teaching in a school, so so she had a certain access to independent earning, which but that didn't protect her from domestic uh, from violence, domestic violence. For a very long time, so she remained in that. Um, she it was she filed a case against her husband only after she was thrown out of her house. It wasn't that she filed it before. And another case you told us about the identity of the, the woman's um, identity documents were taken. How did that impact her? So uh, this was uh, this was a woman I think in Afghanistan who was um, so called marriage uh the 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 other uh thing is many of these marriages were also kind of done not like there wasn't this these were not registered so these were done on stamp papers informally with the village head etc so uh along with this document this marriage document all of her documents were left in this house and her um when she was thrown out of the house she filed a case um, to get back not just a document with them, uh, but the but the furniture and all of that that her that her parents had uh, uh, given her, and she got an order which actually uh, said that she would be she could bring it back. But when she went, she found that there was nothing there, and even her documents were not given to her. Even her documents were not there, and this impact, sir, because this is this is these are all her basic identity documents. Without which, uh, she will not have access to any kind of work. It's going to be difficult for her to continue with the case as well. Because now she has nothing which proves her identity. So if the perpetrator's family comes and tells her then that she's not the person she's saying she is, then there's nothing with her which can prove that she is in fact who she says she is. Um, and, and on top of all of this, and this is not, this wasn't, so relevant at the time and we were doing this research but in a later in the present uh, situation where citizenship again is a very complicated issue the lack of having library documents would actually make you an illegal like a person not person a non grata so so this and that is what she kept saying that I don't need anything just give me back my documents um, because that was what would give her access to at least some form of work to sustain herself now, you talk about affairs that many of the men had, but one specific um, case was the man that 
left his wife for another woman, and um, he stole some money. Ah, uh, one, and um, and I think she was uh, he was also helped by his family, like the husband's family. Uh, end of. Uh, so he stole money. He uh, there were two cases. Uh, kind of similar in one. Um, both the in one case the husband was working in a in a in a company. So he was a salaried employee. Uh, and in another case he was a more an informal worker. In both these cases they uh, ran away and um they picked up they picked up all the money from the joint account. So the woman was left with no money. And instead of supporting the daughter in such a situation in in the, these cases, the family subjected to constant threat and constant threat of eviction, saying that maybe it is her fault that led her to uh, led him to run away with this other with other women, with with the other woman, and um uh, and the and this woman was desperate to get some kind of money back because in her savings everything was in that account, and. She was actually helped by some of her, in some of the office colleagues of her husband, but even they couldn't trace him. Uh, so that was actually one of the cases where we found allies being made in unexpected quarters where some of the office colleagues actually came up to try to find him, try to get him to report back to the office. After people read your book, what is the message you want them to take away with? Um, uh, so, the cup, the two or three things I think we are trying to uh, ask, and I don't know how much we answered this, but there, I don't. Even if people go away with these questions and think around this, I think that will be uh, that will still be uh, worth it. Like that will stay. Um, the the first question, and this is a question that we started off with and tried to complicate, is whether law in itself can address something as complex as the intimate social space in the in the way in which we, if we look to the life at law through the eyes of its users, we see that in the larger scheme of things, it doesn't do anything. In the larger scheme of things, uh, the law is not being obsessed by many people or they are not being able to go through with the entirety, like the, the massive infrastructural uh, impediments are stopping them from being able to Access just uh, continue with uh, the quest for the law, but the law is also often used in ways in which is as ways of negotiation. In women often strategize around the law, and uh, or find a language to speak around the law in terms of maintenance, in terms of asking for maintenance within even outside the marital home to stay in a space of their own. So, so there are so. Trying to think around the law, not just as a legal, um, not just as a law, but as something which also has a life of its own. So this was the this was one thing that we wanted to talk about, or we wanted to explore. And I don't know if we've come up with a definitive answer, but we've definitely realized it's more complicated than um, than we start but but was. Um, the second thing that we wanted to look at was to question the idea of the domestic itself, and to see how. Uh, the domestic is multiple things. It's an economic security space. It's a space of social prestige. It's a space of complex affect. And all of these come with the idea of value. It's also a space of unpaid labor. So that's the other thing that we wanted to talk. Uh, we wanted to show is how the 
domestic is a complicated space and to think about is there a possibility of thinking beyond the thinking of the domestic beyond the familial so we've given a few examples in the book where we have talked about women who've actually left their violent domestic spaces and found solidarity and camaraderie between each other so we want to think more on these lines of whether whether domestic can be understood beyond the familial beyond the family or whether the or whether this becomes an alternative kinship network and the final thing that we want to wanted to talk about was even when such even in case of laws which are as apparently inclusive as the PWDVA is because it does a lot of extraordinary things it still marginalizes the minority communities and uh, and and to think about how gender specificity um, and patriarchy do not have to be mutually exclusive so to understand this more in terms of patriarchy rather than gender essentialism is one of the things again the third thing that we would like to talk so, yeah, three, I think three beautiful points in my head. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? So, surprise, surprise, I'm still doing another project on domestic violence. So, this actually, we finished it just now. This was a British Academy funded multi sited project um, with West Bengal, Tamil Nadu, and uh, Maharashtra. And we partners in uh, the University of Oxford and in Mary University of London. In this, uh, we are looking at we are looking at its resilience and survival strategies. So how beyond the law, looking at how women who survivors of violence actually survive the survival world, and and that's we're we're wrapping up this project with and, and there's lots of continuities, but also there are some interesting contrasts which come out. Um, and and it's still very like we've just wrapped it up and we're thinking through this. So that's the next thing that we are thinking of writing about as collaborators and as individuals. Well, we'll be looking forward to that research and that new book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Nathan. That was really nice talking to you as well.